finds that as you come to the end of the year, you become reflective. Anyone else like that? You just become a little bit reflective. There's just there's nothing special about it. There's just a time. There's just a season, and that you know, like that. Like yeah, we're December's tomorrow, and we start to think about all those resolutions we made in January. And so, how did that go? You know, two nights ago we were out for dinner, and and he said to me, "So, what do you want to do before you turn 30? I had a few answers, but um, I probably had more questions than answers, to be, to be fair. But so there's this natural kind of reflection thing that comes up, and then as we come into uh, Christmas, and again, just a reminder of Advent, the expected Messiah was, was not the Messiah they were expecting. And, and you know, I, I started 2020 with a vision of off-the-map Christianity. I expected off the map Christianity, but not like this, <laughs> right? Like how many people, 2020 was the year they were expecting in any way, shape or form? You know, like a couple of people going, yeah, this is pretty much what I just signed up for. Well, you could have told us. <laughs> we could have, <laughs> anyway. So, but within that, as I start to look and I look at the things we wanted to achieve and the things we wanted to you know, so off the map, we didn't have a plan necessarily or a strategy or a method, but there were things in my heart that I wanted to see happen. And I see all of those things start to fall into place in the way that I did not expect. And you go, well, amen. Because God is bigger. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You know, I was looking at um, the, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, th- this year, as I was as I was looking at the ideas of where I wanted to see us go and, and go, well, how do you get from here to here? How do you become okay? How do you change something that's been set in stone for as long as it has? And then God goes, oh, that's easy. We all go home for three months and then nothing is the same ever again. And you get this opportunity, this clean slate to come and to go, how's that going to look? And, and so God is so often bigger than we and as I look at that, and as I ask myself that question, and as I look through the Bible and see time and time and time again where God is bigger than we think. You know, one of the things that I, I'm most excited about this year is, is we started this new service on Wednesday night um, called The Forum. And, you know, when we started it, when we sort of led into it, uh, it, it was like we had a bit of an idea, but we sort of had no idea what it might evolve into. And I had a really, I had a rhythm of what I thought it would, you know, we'll, go, oh, we'll run it like this, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do this, we'll do that. And a couple of months in, like, we're not doing that at all, right? Like, but there's good food, and so that was our whole thing. Go, well, if the food's good, then it, like everything else will be okay. Um, but we've had some great conversations, we've seen some great growth, and the exciting thing for me is over the next however many weeks, we've got we're talking about gender and sexuality, and we're engaging with an entire, um, sorry, excuse me, uh, an entire portion of our community who are part of the LGBTQ movement are coming in to this space. And we had the first night of that on Wednesday night, and just the the love and the connection between those two people was phenomenal. And, and you know, there was one person in particular who was talking about, um, you know, and, and was. Dr- 
drawing all these comparisons, who doesn't believe in God and, and going, you know, but I see this in the church and we do it. And so there's this beautiful kind of thing going on. And like, it's so off the map because I, like, I don't have a box for this. I don't have a strategy for this. Uh, but we have to follow the Holy Spirit. You know, there's something about being built. You know, when, when we sing those words, when we talk about that, I will build my life upon your rock. It is a firm foundation. You know, I'm reading, I'm reading two books at the moment. And one is a, uh, it's called The Insistence of God, A Theology of Perhaps. And, and it really interests me. I might read you a quote or two a little bit later on. But this idea of how much of our theology and how much of our faith is often based around certainty. And yet what we see a lot in the Bible is a theology of maybe. A theology of perhaps. And, and he talks about how this actually requires more faith because it's, it's the infinite possibilities of what God could do. And sometimes, you know, again, I've said this a thousand times before, but I'll keep saying it because I believe it. God can do more than we can think, ask, or imagine, but sometimes our imagination is very small and God doesn't have to do much to achieve that. But a theology of perhaps says, maybe God could. Maybe God would. You know, I, I dream, and I, like when I started here, people, you know, say to me, you know, you, it's, got, it's a small town in New Zealand, the dream too big, and I'm like, because there's this guy called Elijah in the Bible, and he turns up on the story, uh, he turns up on the scene one day in the book of Kings, and no one's heard of him before, he just turns up, and, and his introduction is this, Elijah from Tishba, and then it goes on to, you know, he turned up and he did this, and God said to him, and God said to him this, and, and the fantastic part about that is you go, okay, let's talk about Tishba, what do you know about it? Nothing. Can you point to it on a map? No. Can you, you know, but, but right through the Bible, we see this whole thing about God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. God, God uses the things that people don't expect. I've said this to someone on, on Wednesday night. You want to find where God is at work. You want to find the people that God wants to use you through, that God wants to move through to build his kingdom. You find the people that the church feel the most poorly about. Because that's what God has always done. And we could go through the Bible again and again and again, and we could see this. You know, I was reading Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius and Peter. And Peter gets sent, and he has this dream, right? Don't call unclean what God has called clean. And so he goes, all right. Because he has this dream where he's like, you know, like, they're not supposed to eat bacon. And so, like, he has this dream, and there's all these pigs, and God's like, get up and kill and eat. And he's like, I have a question. <laughs> and so this, this whole thing, and then three men come to get Peter and take him to Cornelius, and, and Peter goes, and he says, you know, our word says, our Lord say that a Jew should not associate with a Gentile. And then they all get filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter goes, okay, well, we should probably baptize him. Because... Like if God sees fit to fill them with his Holy Spirit, who am I to to who am I, you know? Um, I remember sitting with, with uh, Virgil and Elvis one day and the and the word that God put into my head as we were talking about different things was do not curse what God is blessing. And equally don't bless what God is cursing. <laughs> You know, and, and so as we work through this, and I've seen time and time and time and time again where God does things that we don't expect. You know, we love to talk about the, the uh, 
verse in the Bible that talks about, you know, the sheep and the goats. And on that day, God will separate the sheep from the goats, and he'll say to the ones on his left, you know, come at me. Say to the ones on the right, depart from me, for I never knew you. And we love to talk about this in our salvation altar calls until we realize that the implication based on who Jesus was speaking to is that the goats were the people who would have considered themselves in. Because he was talking to the Pharisees. He was talking to the, the religious people of the day. Um, you know, another author that I've been reading at the moment has um, talks about this, this idea that what would it look like to read the Bible and authentically ask myself the question, who am I in this story? Because often when we read through the Bible, we read through and we see stories of David, we see stories of Moses, we see stories of, of, of the heroes of the Bible, uh, or, or we see the stories of the oppressed minority and we go, that's me, or that's me, or that's me. I'm the main character of this story. And, and this particular guy, he said, you know, I read through the Bible and asked God, who am I? And he said, and I arrived at a conclusion at the end. I'm a Roman soldier. <laughs> you know, who am I in this story? I'm a Roman soldier. I have privilege. I have access. I have, you know, more than most people around me have. I have the majority. I have this. So therefore, if I read the Bible and said, what would God say to me? You know, I, I got given a book once uh, called Accidental Pharisee. It's a great read. It's a great read. But I've never recommended it to anybody. The reason being is I think a book like Accidental Pharisee is a book that we read and go, I know someone who needs to read this. Right? It's the sort of book that we read and go, I know someone who needs to read this. When in reality, a book like Accidental Pharisee is a book that we should hold in our hands and go, I think this might be written for me. I think maybe I, think maybe I see myself in this book more than I ought to. I think maybe I'm the Pharisee. Uh, there's an old British um, comedy skit with a, um, it's a war. I, if I had it, I'd play it. But it, it's, they've got the, um, it's kind of a play on, on Britain and, and the Nazis. And, and they're sitting and they're talking. And, and this guy's like, they, they're talking all about what they do in their uniform. He's like, we've got, we've got the skulls. Like, are we, are we the bad guys? Like, I think we might be the bad guys. He goes, no, no, we're not the bad guys. Like, you know, but we're going to do this. He's like, seriously, I think we might be the bad guys. <laughs> And so often when I read the stories of the gospel and the scriptures and, 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 you know, what I'm finding more and more is that I'm starting to go, am I the Pharisee? Am I the Roman soldier? Am I the, am I Herod? Am I the religion? Am I the Sadducee? Am I the, you know, am I the one who's expecting God to do something and then missing what God is doing? Because, if the, if, the, if the Pharisees and if the people of the Old Testament could expect to see God, they were expecting Messiah, but when it turns out they missed it. The question that they asked of my spirit is, am I expecting revival? Now, again, I think if there's a bigger show of hands, how many are expecting revival? Most people in that room would go, I want to see revival. I'm expecting, I'm praying for, I'm, you know, and then sometimes it turns up on your door and you go, no, thank you. Not in that form. <laughs> I want it like they had it at, at Azusa Street, or I want it like they had it, you know, down here. And, and so we have all these kind of things that start to start to come out. And my thought in this last couple of weeks, and, and really this year, has been if I'm building my life upon Christ, if He's my foundation. Where do I see him in my life? 
genuine? Where do I genuinely see the Lord? And one of the things that confused me is I see a whole lot of Christians and a whole lot of churches um, around the world, not just in our region, not just in our one neighborhood. And I don't say this to be critical because I say this because actually we can be very critical, right? It's easy for churches to get caught up again and again and again in doing what they've always done, despite the fact that it never works, despite the fact, you know, um, we were having a conversation with some BCMA pastors a couple of weeks ago about what's the most fruitful area of your church right now? What's the most fruitful ministry in your church? And so we were all able to talk about it. And then someone asked the question, so if that's the most fruitful area of your church, how much of your budget is there? And almost every church was like, we know that answer. No, we don't know that answer. Now again, something isn't always valuable just because you've got money in your hand. But it's a great challenging question because sometimes we put all of our money into the fruitless things, right? Don't we? To try and keep them fruitful, to try and sustain them, to try and go, we need to keep this going, we need to do this, we need to sustain this. You know, I, and I'll be the first person to say, you know, this year, or in the last 12 months, two failed staff hires. You go, God, I thought I was hearing from you. I thought I was doing something. You know, I, I thought, I went, that's important, so therefore we'll put money towards it, and then it fell on its face, and no fruit came of it. And then that's where God starts to go, well, how are you expecting me? Is your expectation actually based on coming to me and praying and reading the word and, and waiting on me and looking for where I'm moving? Or is it just, hey, every church has a youth pastor and a children's pastor who will do this. How often do we get caught in the rhythm and the routine? And then we have to ask that question, is my life built on Jesus or is it built on rhythm and routine? Is it built on what I've come to know. And so the second book that I'm reading is called What Would Jesus Deconstruct? Now, we always talk about what would Jesus do, but this question, what would Jesus deconstruct? If God was to step into your life right now, if God was to step into uh, your you know, theology, your, your workplace, your whatever, the way you live your life, what would he go... that we need to address that because i believe that part of what god is doing in this season for his church is deconstruction i think there's a time where we start to come and i think every generation does it i think every generation does where they take everything that their parents have taught them that their history's taught them that the media tells them and you hold it all and you go what do i think about all of this what do i think about all of this and there's been significant times throughout history of the church i mean the reformation was a big one where, where a guy named Martin Luther took a whole bunch of stuff and went, yeah, nah, that's, that's not what it, I don't think that's what it is. We need to deconstruct this. We need to go back to ground zero and build something new. A couple of weeks ago, I asked the question, if we could take, we were talking specifically a couple of weeks ago about heaven and hell, but whether it was heaven and hell, whether it was you know any issue in the Bible that we talked about, if we could go back in the Bible and go, what does God say about this? 
and we could simply lean into His Word and His Holy Spirit, would we arrive at the same conclusions that we did? There's, there's an old story about a, a, a Catholic priest who's downstairs in the archives of the Vatican one day, and, and, and he's in tears, and you can hear his words throughout the whole here is his, his cries throughout the whole archives and up the stairs into the Vatican where the stones so everything echoes and this other priest he walks he walks down the stairs to the guy and he puts his hand on his shoulder and he's, he's assuming that maybe he's been touched gently by some scripture he's read or something he puts a hand on his shoulder and he says are you okay my brother and he looks up at him in tears in his eyes and he says we missed the R says celebrate I'll wait <laughs> there we go so, so you know how many things do we hold on to <laughs> the word with celibate if you take the R away for those of you that are still catching up at home uh, <laughs> it's not a true story it's a joke it's okay um, so this whole idea you know how many things do we do though that actually we, we, we put theology on our well, hang on. Maybe that doesn't. And we get scared of that. You know, I was having a conversation with Sharon Simpson last week, right? And he was like, hey, you know, and we were talking about, you know, Sharon went through a massive deconstruction of her faith about, what, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, where, where God just essentially undid. And went, you know, so we're going to take all of this and then we're going to put it back together and we're going to work out which bits fit into the thing and which bits don't. And for someone who's been following God, for how long have you been a Christian, Sharon? For 20 years? No, 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 no. 58 years. For someone who's been following Jesus for 58 years, there's a scary thought about going, I'm going to take this and I'm going to begin to deconstruct it. And then I'm going to attempt to put it back together and find out which parts actually fit with the Jesus I know and which parts have come through tradition, religion, my own ideology, my own culture. And, and yeah, the conversation that Sharon and I were having, because once you've been through a process like this, you become quite passionate about other people's answer, and you have to be careful that you don't try to deconstruct their lives for them, I've found, because this is a process we have to do ourselves and with Jesus. Um, generally, when you try to deconstruct someone else's faith, it just ends badly. Um, and the important part of any deconstruction process is it has to be led by the Holy because there's plenty of popular culture that wants to deconstruct the church today. Where we just start to go, well, we don't need to have, nobody believes that. We don't have to have that. But we're not being led by the Spirit, we're being led by, again, whose world does my theology revolve around? Does it revolve around what makes me comfortable? Does it revolve around what makes my friends comfortable? Or does it revolve around what Jesus would do? And so within that, you know, starting to deconstruct, so yeah, the, the conversation that Sharon and I were having is, is how many times do you talk to someone who's had 50 years or 20 years, and, and, and it takes place for even 10 years, five years, two years. Once we've been in God for a while, and he goes, hey, I want to deconstruct some stuff. And, and, you know, Sharon and I both had conversations with people who have been caught up in, in the abuse of, of the way that closed religion has treated them. And, and you see them get set free in that conversation. And at the end, they reset. Because it would be too hard to change me. 
right? It, it would undo, like I've worked, I mean, you, you think of Paul in the Bible, right? Or let's, you think of Saul in the Bible, who he's this recognized man of faith. He's this recognized, you know, in the, in the Jewish church, he's like the top, like everybody knows who he is. And one day he has this domestic, he has this Damascus Road experience. It probably was a little bit like a domestic, where God knocks him off his donkey, and I, there's a way, funnier way you can say this, but God knocks him off his donkey and says to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, and you go, well, well, hang on. And so he goes, well, hang on, I thought I was serving you. No, no, you, why do you persecute me? And so he, he picks him up, he puts him on this new, trajectory really of, of journey and says you're going to be Paul now and you're going to do this and, and, and unbeknownst to him at that time like God's going and you're going to write the majority of the New Testament the most formative document for generations to come can you imagine him handing in his resignation like going hey um, look I know that for the last like 20 odd years I've devoted my life well probably longer but particularly the last several years I've devoted my life to like the really anti-Jesus movement, to persecuting these people who don't like Jesus, killing them. But, but now I'm actually going to go and I'm going to write their book for them. <laughs> Imagine handing in that resignation. See, when we have nothing to lose, it's easy to risk. It's easy to go, I'll do a new thing. I'll try something new. You know? Like, when God asked Bex to go, hey, I want you to resign from your job. And do what? No, no. <laughs> Did I stutter? You know, oh God, when, there's some, when you've got skin in the game, when you've got something to lose, whether it's finances, whether it's a reputation, whether it's a, uh, a you know, wh whatever it may be, it's that much harder. And yet Jesus, I believe Jesus wants to do something special. Not to leave it broken and scattered, but to build it up stronger. To build it up revolving around Him and so we get this invitation to go, God, will I let you do what you want to do in my life? And this is why the Bible says, you know, I never used to understand you. I never used to understand the heart of God. And the verse talks about work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because, you know, I thought God came to set us free from, you know, our guilt and our shame and our fear. But there's a, the, the sense of working out your salvation with fear and trembling is the sense of coming to God and going, I want to build this right. And I'm a little bit scared of getting it wrong. But in the interest of finding you, Holy Spirit, will you help me deconstruct and reform my faith in a way that does not make me comfortable in fact, it'll, make, it'll probably make you uncomfortable because we tend to build a faith that makes us comfortable. Ain't nowhere where Jesus promises that. Jesus promises rest. He promises peace. He talks about the Holy Spirit who is the comforter, but he does not talk about you becoming comfortable. And so there's this deconstruction. And as we come into Christmas, I think the reminder for us is that Jesus did not come into this world to establish our identity. He came to do and to reform our 
you don't see that in the world either. Every time that people expected Jesus to work, he's going to do something different. John chapter 5, the woman caught in the, back, in, the, in the act of adultery, and they all go, this, we're going to do this, that, and, you know, and the word of God says that this woman took the stone and got the news guys. And they didn't do what they expected Jesus to do. They expected this you know, everyone had this picture of a Messiah coming in and that, you know, that he was going to be strong, he was going to be a king, and then there's a baby in a manger. In the most unexpected form. And time and time and time again, we see these stories. Acts chapter 10, if Peter goes to prison, he repents. You know, and we'd have this kind of process of, well, you should do this, and say the sinner's prayer, then you get baptized, and then, you're sin, and then you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They go down to see these Gentiles and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So I guess we should baptize them. And they, I think we need to play catch up with what God's doing. <laughs> and so my thing is going, can we find where God already is working? Because what I've come to realize, again, Acts chapter, I'm reading this, chapter 7, verse 18. I'm sorry for using my mind's eye. Paul finds an idol <laughs> in a city amongst a whole bunch of other cities, and there's one that doesn't have a name. And he's like, ah, God's already at work in this place. And he picks up his pen, and he tells them the unknown God is Jesus. He introduces them. You know, last week I ran into, some of you might have had the same experience, tour guide tour or something. I ran into a, a guy by the name of Armani at Hackensack, and uh, he was a Hare Krishna. On a crusade, a camel came down the road. I got out of the, <laughs> hilariously, I got out of the car and he said, oh, are you a monk too? <laughs> like, whatever led you to that observation? And I turn around and here's this guy with this really shiny head. Very casually dressed, you know, not with the monk that I was. And God does something to the unexpected. And so he's got these books for me and as I talk to him, the kids fly out of the room. And I'm sitting there going, you ever had those moments where you're like, I was just going to get milk. I was in a hurry. Emma was very upset because I was 45 minutes late <laughs> getting home be- to get milk. Um, I, you know, at least I remembered the milk. You know, whereas you come home 45 minutes later, that was awesome. Thanks for milk. And so I'm in this, and I'm, I'm going, and you don't have, you're not prepared for something. And suddenly, you, like you pray this prayer. It's this deeply spiritual prayer. You go, Holy Spirit, help you go, okay, God, so lead me in this conversation. And what I was able to do is we went through this whole journey. He, like I asked him, I told him, how did it end up? How did you read it? And, and I could see where God, my God, not his, I could see where my God was at work in his life. And so I just started to point it out a little bit. And then I started to tell him some stories. He told me his story. I started to tell him some stories. I started to tell him stories of, of what God does in, in his church. I told, I told him Annabelle's story about how she came to church and what God did in her life. And I told him Sue's story about what God did in his life. I told him Angelica's story about what God did in her life. Did I say Sue? Sue? <laughs> Sue. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I just started to tell these stories. And by the end of it, he was kind of like, whoa. Because my God's got the best story. Jesus has the best story. And there is only one way to God, and his name is Jesus. But often, before people find Jesus, Jesus has already found them. And so my encouragement as we come into the Christmas season, looking for Jesus, 
the expected Messiah. The one that we, you know, and like we're not waiting for God to come. God has already come. We know that he will come again. We know that the invitation each day is that he wants to come into our lives today. But my encouragement is this. While we are looking for God, might we consider, while we're looking for God in our families, while we're looking for God in our community, might we consider that God has already found us and that God has already come. And the expected Messiah probably will move in a way that we didn't expect him to. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the reminder this morning that you are bigger, that you are greater, that you can do more than we can think up. And so, Lord, we know that if you can do more than we can imagine, how foolish we would be to limit you to what we know. Lord, we know so little compared to what is knowable in our world and in your spirit. Lord, even the most educated among us, the the most educated in your word and the most educated in the things of God know so little compared to what you ask of us. And so, Lord, help us not to put you down. Help us to expect you in unexpected ways. Help us to position ourselves so that when you move in our midst, when you move in our workplace, when you move in our schools, when you move in our communities, we wouldn't miss it, but we would have eyes to see it. Lord, I thank you for the ones already that you are bringing into this place through unconventional means who are meeting you. And Lord, the ones that haven't met you yet, Lord, that you are already in the process of meeting them. And Lord, I pray that as we sang this morning, that you would open up my eyes to see your world and your work around me. That you would anoint our lips, that you would anoint our words, our actions. God, as we collect food on Tuesday, Lord, we pray that it would be so much more than a collection. We pray that it would be an exchange. Lord, that we would leave something of a deposit of the kingdom of God in that area and in our region. Lord, that we would develop a theology that says perhaps God could, perhaps God could here in little old Blenheim do something that shines his name across the nations and reveals the glory and the majesty of God. Not so that we can boast. Lord, we don't want it to revolve around us but Lord, so that more people would come in, that more people might repent, that more people might know and experience your love, your justice, your truth, your mercy, your salvation. That the name of Jesus alone is worthy and that our lives would be worthy and revolve around that name, the name that is above every other name. Before you do that, 
go and have coffee. Don't do it. You've got to run away. Ping pong, sort of thing. Go to Burger. Remember, we've got real coffee, whatever that means. Um, so, yeah. 